My last thing, uh, planting roots. Uh, planting roots is our, is our effort to get ourselves a permanent home. So we bought that field out there, and we have been going back and forth with the city for a while, and we submitted plans on Friday. <laughs> Woohoo! Keep going with your planting roots commitment. Woohoo! Okay, just <laughs> keep it going because now is when it starts costing money. So uh, if you want to see the plans, we're going to have those today at baptisms. Uh, we'll show you some 3D renderings, and then we'll also show you uh, the, the whole site plan that the city got and some different stuff in there as well. So if you want to come and, and look at that, it'll be something kind of cool to look at as well. Okay, okay, welcome to Element. Welcome. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. On the cover of these, there's this cool little thing. You get to color because sometimes I get boring and it will keep you awake and I don't like snoring. Just color. It'll be fine. There's a crayons on all the communion tables around the room. Inside of those sermon notes, you'll get some notes, some questions, and announcements and all that goes along with today's message and stuff like that. If you own a smartphone, you don't get the color here, but you can download an app called Uversion and click on Live. And in Live, you will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and announcements and all that goes along with the message, except, again, you don't get the color. So, sorry. Baby Olivia! Baby Olivia! No! All right. All right. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Really sorry about that sometimes, by the way. <laughs> Why don't you stay on the reading of God's Word? We'll get started. This is Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you, who understand your providential hand over all things, and that we would worship and honor and glorify you by how we trust you and how we see everything that comes into our lives. Uh, teach us to be those who lift you up above all things. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week 11 of Coloring Book All-Stars, where we look at the figures in the Bible that you would find in a kid's Bible coloring book, the ones who are larger than life. we got one week left after this week. And there are probably a few that, as we go through this, you'll think, well, you didn't do this. Someone actually posted something like that on Facebook last week. Oh, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. Well, here you go. You know what you get to do? You get to tell your friends or your kids about those. And when you do it, have a lot of fun. Read it. Dress up. If God's talking, do God voice thing. James Earl Jones, hello, Luke. I am your father. You know, just just do it. You know, just it'll, it'll be amazing. And then cuddle them with your kids. Just have a whole lot of fun telling the stories. Because that's what you want to have fun telling the stories. Now today it should be easy to color because we're talking about Joseph. He's here. We don't know if he looked like that, whatever. But anyway, uh, he's one of the most loved figures in the Bible. He has this coat of many colors that people get really excited, you know, coloring through. I'll show you some pics. Uh, this is Raiden. He's six. This is his over there. And this is Vincent. He's nine. Anybody's ever watched Dragon Ball Z? I call this Super Saiyan Joseph. Okay, about 10% of you. That, that, I'll, I'll take that. that. That's good. So anyway, at the outset, I will tell you a couple things here. Uh, we're going to end in a place that seems kind of morbid, but we're going to end in a place where I tell you that Joseph died. That's where his life ends. Everybody loves him because he's so righteous and wonderful and, and he loves God. But as much as he is righteous and as much as he loved God, he still died. His morality doesn't save him from death, which all the more points us to his need and our need for a savior. I mean, God sent Jesus not just to save the world, but to save men's souls, your soul and and my soul. And this is what we keep coming back to throughout Coloring Book 
all-stars. Now, what you'll see in the life of Joseph is you'll see this issue of providence, God's hand over everything. God brought Joseph where Joseph was for God's own purposes. People like to point to Joseph's dad, and they see the same issues of providence in his life, and they show you the good and bad in, in, Jacob, or in Joseph's dad's life. Uh, like, you see where God takes uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob, and he calls him, and he blesses him, and, re- and he redeems him. And those are beautiful and good things, but then you see Jacob has four wives and 13 kids. Don't be that dad, okay? Don't, don't be that dad. But what it teaches you is the sovereignty of God in the midst of men's idiocy. Open to Genesis 37. Genesis 37 is where you first meet Joseph. And again, Joseph is a pretty amazing guy. Creation will get two chapters in the Bible. Joseph gets 13. Like, we spent 13 weeks just talking about his life back in the book of Genesis. So I'm going to whittle that all down to kind of one week here all comes down to the issues of providence. Now, Joseph doesn't see all the providence in God working in his life. Just a lot of times, we don't either. This is why it's good to have friends who are also Christians, because what you'll be able to do is look in their life and see how God is working in their life, and, and you can actually point it out to them. Like, after a year, do you know how much you've grown in the last year? These are the things I see God has done in your life. And you get to tell your friends this, because they may not even see it in the midst of what they're going through. We get to see it and talk about God's providential hand in our lives. Now, providence is, can be miracles, okay? God's seen hand. That, that could be part of it. This is like the flood or parting the Red Sea or Jesus raising from the dead. But God doesn't usually work like that. Or how God usually works is his invisible, unseen hand. When God is active and moving forward, we just don't see it as plainly as a miracle, This is where God works through our pain and our hardship and our joy and our love. God determines where we will be born, what gifts we have, and he works quietly and consistently through subtle promise. I mean, providence is an understanding that God made everything and everyone, and he he is still involved in his creation. He still rules over history. We sin. We have vestiges of free will, but ultimately God's will is freer than ours because he will work everything out the way he wants it to be. That's providence. We worship Jesus, not some vague God who's wandering off somewhere that got lost and oblivious to his people. We worship Jesus sitting on a throne, ruling creation with great personal vested interest. We don't believe in chance. We don't believe in fate. We don't believe in luck. We believe in a God who rules and reigns over history, sometimes through the seen miracles and sometimes through this subtle idea of this invisible hand of God working throughout our lives. Always, always come back to the idea of providence. Now, so Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob, this is also Israel, these names are interchangeable. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. So here's where you meet Joseph. You will also see good and bad in his life, just like his father. So this is the good. At 17 years old, what's Joseph doing? Right, he's working. He's out there, he's, he's working. Starts as a good example. At 17, you don't have to smoke weed and play Xbox all day and text while you drive real fast. You don't have to do that. You can actually be godly. In the scriptures, Daniel, Isaiah, Timothy, all godly young guys. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. A lot of teenagers, when they hear that verse, they only hear the first part. Let no one despise you for your youth. Yeah, get off my case, man. I'm, I'm youth. Get off. And like, Mom, can you put more batteries in this controller for me? Right? The, the second part of that is, is so much better. But set the believer as an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. It's not, get off my back. Paul's calling us to something greater in our lives. Do something. 
I mean, if you are a teenager, you have the, the great joy to be able to set the example for some of the older slackers. That could be you. It's, it's not young and old. It's mature versus immature. Josephine, 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So here's the good. He's working. And now here's the bad. He's a whiner and he's a tattletale. That is not good. Dad, they're picking their boogers on the sheep and they ate my cookies. Dad, do something. I mean, Joseph starts off as a whiny brat, but he's going to end very, very well. Verse 3. Now Israel, again, Jacob, those names are interchangeable. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And this is where the coloring book pictures come in because everybody loves to color the robe. But there's a problem with the robe, the problem with this coat. It causes division among all of Jacob's kids because this is the sin of favoritism. When you have kids, you do not play favorites. It's not, hey, sweetie pie, go get the idiot. That's not what you do. If you do something for one kid, do it for all the kids. I mean, if you take the boys for, like, hot dogs and they go to the dump because boys, for some reason, love dump, right? You, you take the girls shoe shopping. Each kid is different, and you pay attention to that. His dad played favorites, gave Joseph a coat, but you also see that Joseph wears the coat. He puts it on. Oh, my daddy gave me a coat. Woo, have you seen my coat? Woo, and he's showing it off to everybody. He's that kid. The one kid you just kind of want to smack upside. That, that's Joseph. That, that's the picture right there. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This shows you when a father favors a child, the kids don't hate the dad. The kids hate the child. That's what happens. But what you'll see is how providence, how God moves us all together and takes all this animosity. He now will give Joseph a dream which seems to compound the whole coat issue. What Joseph's dream shows him is that his entire family, including his mom and his dad, bow down to him. So what does Joseph do with this dream? Kills everybody, right? Like a knucklehead 17-year-old doesn't know how to keep their mouth shut. If you dream that your brother is pumping your gas, don't tell him. Okay, don't, don't tell him, but Joseph does. I mean, his, Joseph's dad's like, I'm your dad. I'm not bowing down. I'll whoop your butt is what I'll do. I mean, that's like, I don't know how his dad responds to this, this whole thing. It's, it's really, you should read it sometime. It's funny. Anyway, so, so all this animosity sits there. And then you get to Genesis 37, verse 14. Jacob now says to Joseph, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Essentially, he says, Joseph, here's your clipboard and a list. Go check up on those losers and come back and tell me so I can yell at them some more. Go be a tattletale. I, I like that. And it's very sad on Jacob's part because instead of making his kids a team, he's drawing a wedge between them. He's pushing them farther apart. Genesis 37, verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So this is how, how far the animosity is gone. And before you think, oh, that's the horrible. Brothers are like this, okay? They're mean, uh, they're malicious to each other. When I was a kid, I would hide in my brother's closet with a trumpet in my hand, just wait for him to open. I'd hide there for hours. Door open, boom! Ah! Right? What do I got to do today? Make my brother poop his pants. That's all I have to do. Wonderful. And then he'd beat me up. But anyway, and in the end, they, stayed, they decide not to kill him. They decide to sell him off into slavery. So they sell him to some Midianite traders who are going by. Then they take his coat, they dip it in blood, and they give it to their dad and say, a wild animal caught him and ate him, and your son is dead. And so their dad thinks he is dead. For Joseph, meanwhile, Genesis 37, verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. 
So this is Joseph's life, right? Going just to worse, to worse, to worse. Trouble has a way of revealing our character, making evident our character. Throughout the scriptures, you will see people respond to trials in different ways. The writer of Proverbs in 24 verse 10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now, the NIV will give you kind of a thought behind that. It says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Part of what trouble does is it tests our character. Do we really believe the things that we say we believe? Proverbs 17.3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. You now will get to see who Joseph becomes in the midst of these trials. So Joseph, he's in Potiphar's house. He becomes Potiphar's right-hand servant man. However you say that, go to Genesis 39, verse 3. Says his master thought the Lord was with him, so he sees who God is by how Joseph lives, like we talked about last week with Moses. He is the message, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. So Joseph becomes Potiphar's executive assistant. The devil wears Prada, Potiphar wears Joseph. That's kind of how that works. Uh, but he works hard, he works smart, he's faithful, even though he was a slave. Now here comes the problem. Verse 6, the second half of it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Some translations will use the words well-built. Joseph is the only person in the Bible that these words are used together to describe him, which means he is probably the hottest dude in the Bible. He is one good-looking dude. And you think that would be a good thing, but it's not, because men and women, they are both crazy. Magic Mike was not made for dudes. It was made for ladies. And this is kind of the thing with him. The downside, when you're that good looking, people must want you naked. I have never had that problem. I built like a junior high girl. I get it, okay? But apparently, he has has the issue. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. It doesn't mean let's go tell people fibs. Okay? This means we're going to have sex now. Joseph can't sue for sexual harassment. He's a slave. He can't say, oh, I'm fed up. I quit. I can't. I'm out of here. Slaves are expected in a lot of cultures to perform sexual favors for their owners. And she's not like, let's get some coffee and talk. She's like, we're going to go to bed now. I cannot imagine being in my early 20s looking like Brad Pitt in his early 20s and dealing with this kind of thing. I mean, our culture, Hollywood, they're like, oh, this is a great story. You got the desperate housewife. He's the attractive lawn boy. Bow, chicka, wow, wow. I mean, that, that's what we think. But this becomes the defining moment in Joseph's life. He can go to bed with her, live a secret life of sin, or he can follow God. That's what he can do. And so much of our lives are going to be summed up by the decisions we make when it comes to sexual sin. Because it can destroy us. Joseph doesn't know the providential plan of God. Joseph doesn't know why he's in slavery. Joseph doesn't know why he is where he is for the reasons that he is. All he knows is, I'm totally alone here. What's going on? I, I don't get it. And so Joseph makes his decision. Verse 8, it says, but he refused. I mean, if you have a Bible, you should circle that. But he refused. When something comes up and tempts you like that, like some sexual thing, you just go back. But he refused. You refuse. You don't negotiate. You refuse. You run away. When the old boyfriend or girl on Facebook goes, hey, what's up? You refuse. I will not accept that friend invitation because you're psycho. You refuse. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And then he says this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Who is Joseph thinking about? God. 
Exactly. That's what he's saying. It matters what we do when we're alone because our lives are meant to be those that honor and worship and follow Jesus every single day. And if you know the story, you know what happens. She continues to pursue him. He refuses to be alone with her. Eventually, one day, he's walked through the house, and she's cougar, you know. That's what they call him for a reason, I think. She jumps out, and she grabs his robe, and he's like, Whoa! And he goes, run. I don't know if that's what he did, but you know. that's my impression. Okay. And, and she runs out, and he holds on, and she gets the robe, and he just runs out like naked or something, and she's holding on to his robe. So what she does, she has his robe, and she says, she says, he tried to rape me. He tried to rape me. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Joseph goes to jail on a false rape charge. Why? Because he did what was right. God, I was doing the right thing. God, how come you had me thrown into prison? I, I did the right thing. I should be able to be blessed. I should have good things happen because I did the right thing. God, where are you? God, what? God. That's how we respond. Oh, I have this terrible thing? Well, either I'm not doing something right or God's not doing his job. And instead, what you see through Joseph's life is God's providential hand working through everything in this. I think it's one of the reasons why. It's a coloring book all-star. It's probably the best one we've looked at so far, actually. Uh, now, Joseph in prison, he's going to still follow God. Now, how many times have you heard maybe from preachers on the radio, never from me, obviously, but, oh, if you love God, you serve God, you honor God, your life's going to go well. You ever hear that? It's untrue. It's totally true. I know that is not the best sales pitch when we're talking about Christianity, right? We want to say, oh, you'll be like Joseph, and he ate steak and had smoothies the rest of his life. It was so, But that's not how it is. I mean, the more Joseph obeyed God, the worse his life got. This can be you. I mean, that's not a good sales pitch. You know, Jesus got betrayed by a friend. He got murdered for no reason. To be a Christian is to be treated like Christ. Just because we obey God does not mean life goes well. It means that it sits under the providential hand of God is what it means. Sometimes evil does succeed for a while. Now, eventually, Joseph is going to come rise out of this. But it's only because God himself is faithful, even when we don't know the why of our circumstances. You and I must become a people who decide between an easy life and an obedient life. I mean, Joseph goes to jail, prison. This is an Egyptian prison. It is not like Martha Stewart's Camp Cupcake. There's, there's no weights, no cable TV, no cigarettes. This is a hole in the ground. And if you don't know this, jail is a bad place for an attractive young man. Verse 21. But the Lord is with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Everything has changed in Joseph's life except his relationship with God. God is still there, faithful. God is doing something, and Joseph is trusting him. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Providence providence whatever was done there he was the one who did it the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in joseph's charge because the lord was with him and whatever he did the lord made it succeed he gets put in charge of the jail you know you're a dependable guy when they give you the keys to the jail when you're one of the prisoners in it it's like isn't he going to run off no he's a christian he's he's dependable Really? I've heard about Christians. I don't know how dependable they are. No, this one's a different. You know, he really does love God. That, that guy right there. Joseph will sit in jail for his 20s, the best years of his life. People are going to come in and out. Eventually, the king's baker and the king's cupbearer gets thrown into jail for offending Pharaoh in some way. They both have dreams. No one can interpret it but Joseph. And the baker will get beheaded. The cupbearer goes back to his job because Pharaoh apparently hates to carry around his own cup. Like that. Joseph says to the cupbearer, Genesis 40, if you want to flip to Genesis 40, verse 14, he says to him, 
Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. What he says to him is Pharaoh's birthday is coming. And he's going to come get you and pull you out of jail. My name is Joseph. My brother sold me into slavery. Potiphar's wife is a nutty slut who accused me of rape and I didn't do it. I helped you. Now can you help me? Please. What does the cupbearer do? Forgets. Totally forgets Joseph. Two years go by. Nice friend, right? Yeah, anyway. Uh, Eventually, though, Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. What's going on? And the cupbearer goes, oh, I know this guy. I remember when you threw me in jail, and yeah, let's not think about that. But I was there, and I met this guy. His name was Joseph. And so God gives this dream, and only Joseph can interpret it. Had Joseph slept with Potiphar's wife, had Joseph been a knucklehead in jail, I highly doubt he would be in the position that he was now to be able to go into Pharaoh's presence and begin to make a difference. Go to Genesis 41. Genesis 41, verse 14. Says then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And what did they do with him? And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh because he hasn't probably had a bath in a really long time. He's got the crazy bug filled beard and all that. He smells bad, looks bad. Shave him up, shave and haircut, two bits. Go see the king. Okay. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph's answer, great line. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. I love that line. And then he says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Literally what Joseph says is, it's not me. Only God can help you. You have made a mess, and God is the only one that can fix this thing. Now, this is great risk because Pharaoh could say, well, you're no help. Off with your head, too. You know, I, if it was me there, I'd make something up. Oh, you saw these, uh, these cows? cows. Okay, well, these cows are full of stink. And God is saying you need to have, make a tri-tip barbecue. I mean, I, I, would, I would make something up, right? The super high duper fluffinator says, you know, I don't know, s- something. You know, Pharaoh says, my issue is the dream. And Joseph says, no, your issue is God. But I know him. I will talk to him for you. Now, who does Pharaoh tell everybody he is? God. That's who the Pharaoh said, I'm, I'm God on the earth. And Joseph stands for the most powerful man in the world and says, no, you're not. You're not God. He goes, Pharaoh, what you need is the real God. That's what you need. See, it, it's kind of like a lot of people today. We, we all find these false gods in our lives that we give our time and our effort and our money and our energy to. And false gods sometimes will work for you until you need it. Until you need it. Like when you die, a false god does nothing for you because we need forgiveness. It's why if you're a Christian, it's important to be plain with people. If you don't have Jesus, your life is shot because there is a day we all need the real God. And that day is today. It is every day. I mean, Pharaoh thinks he's a god and he can't even interpret a dream. And so he's learning to listen to the real God even though he's not a believer. And so God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream, which is foretelling seven years of extreme famine in the land. He also gives Joseph the wisdom to fix it. Pharaoh sees the wisdom in Joseph and raises him to be the second most powerful man in Egypt, and Joseph saves them all. Now, how many good days has Joseph had in Egypt at this point? Not many, right? Might have had a couple here and there, but, but, not, but not many. He could have kept his mouth shut. He could have said, you know what? I'm bitter. You can all starve. They abused me in prison. You worship demons. Die! I mean, he could have done that. Have Joseph been selfish, that nation would perish. But instead, he says, you can store grain in urban centers for seven years, and when things go bad, you can feed your people. What is Joseph thinking? He's thinking, these people need Jesus. 
That's what he's thinking. They need God. That's what he's thinking. That's his focus. He's, I mean, he's, he's not irritated because they threw him in prison. It's like, what do you expect people who don't follow God to do? How do you expect them to live? Like, we, we are people who get offended too easily. I mean, and he's like, they, what they need, they need Jesus. That's what they need. We must also ask ourselves, how do we get to show the world who God is by how we live, especially in our worst circumstances? How do we live? Because those circumstances are going to reveal what we truly believe about God and about others and truly believe about God's providence in our lives. Joseph sold into slavery, godless nation, works his way up, gets wrongly accused of rape, goes to jail, stays in jail 13 years, his 20s, the best years of your life. When you eat what you want, you take your shirt off at the beach and your hair is all one color and it's on your head and not coming out your ears. You know, those years. But he's stuck in jail and, he, and he's wrongly accused, but he suffers well. Why does Joseph suffer? Because he followed God. That's why he suffered. He tells Potiphar's wife, no, I love God. You're married. That, that's wrong. And I don't remember who said it, but I have this quote in here. I think I'm going to put it up there. They said, it's better to suffer for the truth than be blessed for a lie. It's better to suffer for the truth than be blessed for a lie. I'm sure there are days that Joseph in prison prayed to God. God, I love you. I will obey you. You know, I will follow you. Please get me out of this pit. Joseph probably wants a wife and children and a good job and wonders why he can't have one. God, please, you know, give me these things. But while Joseph is there, he's not inactive. He is not lazy. He works hard. He worked hard for Potiphar. He worked hard for the jailers. He worked hard for the cupbearer. See, we live in such a way that we do things so our life can go well. But when it goes bad, we have patience. We trust God because his hand is over it all. Joseph waits patiently for years. And because of God's providence and his trusting in God, now Joseph has a shot. And he's going to go in and he is going to save this entire nation. God used everyone's sin to steer this whole mess exactly where he wanted it to go. That is providence. That's providence. Joseph could have been arrogant. Oh, so you need me now? What's in it for me? You know, what are you going to give me? Joseph doesn't barter. He doesn't talk about being skinny and hungry and being in jail. He talks about Pharaoh's need for God because that's the most important thing. In 1 Peter 5, 5, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We are to be a humble people. We're to be able to look around and say, God is a good God, and everybody should listen to him because he knows what he's talking about, and we don't. Joseph gets raised up. Eventually, he reunites with his entire family. Uh, Listen to our series on Genesis. It's a year and a half. You'll have tons of fun. Okay. Uh, but at the, end of Joseph's, uh, or at the end of Joseph's dad's life, after they've been reunited, Joseph's brothers are afraid they're going to kill him. They think Joseph forgives his brothers, but they think he only forgave us because our dad asked him to. So when Joseph's father dies, they're like, oh my goodness, he's going to kill us. What do we do? So they go down and they bow before Joseph. How is Joseph going to respond? He's going to respond like the God he serves. Genesis 50, verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Don't kill us. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? They fall at his feet, and the thing that started, this is the thing that started the whole trouble in the first place, Joseph's dream. They do exactly the dream. Joseph could seek vengeance. Oh, hey, you're at my feet. How do they smell? You like them? You know, he could do that, but he doesn't. He says, am I in the place of God? He says, I sinned against God, and God has forgiven me. How can I not also forgive you? That's what he says. And this takes us to the most important verse in the scriptures in regard to redemption, salvation, evil, hardship, pain, and suffering. Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, if you are a Christian, you know people are evil. How do you know that? Because you're evil. 
It's like, oh, because they're horrible. No, because you're evil. And when we understand that, we get it. Everybody else is the, the same way. We don't need to explain it away. Oh, hey, they're a good person. They did a bad thing. Joseph just lays it out there. Okay, you meant evil. And you got to accept that fact and move on. That's where you got to start from. And it's the great gift of Christianity that your hope is not in people. Your hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph is always taking the conversation and points to God because he knows if his brothers are ever going to change, it is not going to be because of some lecture, some Facebook post, some tweet, some creative email forward that you sent to 20 people and said, if you love Jesus, forward this to 20 more people. That's not how people are going to change. People change by coming to understand have a relationship with Jesus. That's how they change. And so that's what we talk about. That's what we talk about. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says, God used all of your evil for good. It doesn't mean that God is evil. It means that God is good. He says, God had me in Potiphar's house to learn about business. God had me in prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream. God used me and the famine to save many people so they could hear about him. And God used your sin to make us a blessing to this nation so people now want to hear about our God. I mean, that's providence. And in Genesis 50, right after this, Joseph dies as well. He dies. But he gets the chance to look back on his life and see all the things that God has done, the providential hand of God. And I think if you and I were to look back on our lives, well, I think we'd begin to see the great things God has done, the places he has moved us to, through the hardship and the pain. I, I think we understand God better through our pain and our restoration. That's the place where we usually grow the most. When you ask people, what's the most growing time in your life? It's usually through something that was very hard. It's not through, oh, I was so happy and God gave me, you know, Smoothies and steak. It's, it's when I went through this really hard valley and it was, it was tough. And on the other side, I realized these things. That's when we grow. So people say, why doesn't God remove the star- struggle? Because I think ministry and grace come out of pain. I mean, Joseph steps back and says, you meant evil, but God, he meant good. God doesn't bring the evil, but God will redeem that evil. I mean, Joseph wouldn't wish what happened to him on anybody, but he wouldn't change it for a thing. Because God, what God did was beautiful and good. When God heals us of our brokenness, we become stronger. Everyone everywhere tried to ruin Joseph's life, but he kept on moving forward because he knew God was good, even in the midst of horrible circumstances. And he becomes a blessing not just to his city, but his entire nation. Now, I don't know if you understand this or see this, how God is calling us to be a blessing to the people around us to make a difference. We simply begin at the place where we trust Jesus with our lives, and it moves forward from there. Our family, our friends, our city, we don't need more idolatry or more religion. It means people who will set aside their pride and simply love Jesus as he calls us to, no matter where we find ourselves, that we talk about him and his providence and his grace and his goodness. It's why we do baptisms the way that we do. We want everybody there. Why we have people who get baptized write their stories so you can read the stories about what God has done. And then they, some people have never learned how to tell their story before. And so we have them write them. And believe me, sometimes it's hard to get people to turn in those stories. It's like, oh, it'll be easy. And then like two months later, like, I still don't know what to do. And, and they write their story. And you get to read these things. And now they know how to tell their story about the providential hand of God and what he's doing. This God works in our lives. And what you'll see eventually in the scriptures, I mean, promised in, Joseph, uh, promised in Joseph's life and his dad's life and his grandfather's life and his great-grandfather's life, eventually what you see, God brings all of his providential plan to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. God says, my son is coming, and he will redeem, and he will save, and he will take away the sin of all people. This is what Jesus does. 
That's why we talk about communion, right? When you break that crack, it reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us, fulfillment of God's providential promises to save his people. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me to wash away all the sin that had separated us from each other and most importantly us from God in relationship with him. Jesus restores relationship again, just like Joseph restored relationship with his brothers. It all comes out of God's providential plan and what he has done and what he continues to do. Our God is amazing that he works all of human history together for his plan. And sometimes we don't see it. I mean, sometimes it's, uh, someone once said it's like a, like a loom. And under, underneath, like, the tapestry, you see, you see all the snags and snarls, and it's just all ugly and nasty. It's, that's where we live. But you flip it over on the backside, and it's like this beautiful tapestry. And he says, and that's what God sees, because God's weaving it together. We see the snags and the snarls and all this stuff, and God weaves it all together. And that's something we have to understand. God's providential hand and providential care stands over all of us, and we are to be a people who understand that and trust him in all of our times because Jesus has come to restore relationship with us. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. be some uh, deacons in the back, and maybe you, you want to pray with them. You want to you talk about this. I will tell you, God has you where you are today for a reason. You're in this room for a reason. You're going to go to baptisms for a reason. You're not going to feed my dog for a reason. And if you want to talk about Jesus and understand that more, they'd love to talk to you. Maybe you're in a place in your life today where, you know, you're just going through something horrendous and, and you want to be able to see Jesus in the midst of it and you don't know how. They'd love to pray and talk with you about that. To continue to re-steer us and refocus us on the person of who Jesus is. Uh, there's offering boxes on the side of all in the back and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. You don't pass the plate's response to what he's done because our God has given so much to us. Uh, there's food in the back. Uh, don't get all full and stuffed because you're going to come and eat tri-tip today. Bring an easy up if you want shade, by the way. Um, but come and eat and hang out. Uh, maybe today, if you sit with a couple people, maybe ask some of the questions in the sermon notes. Just go a little bit deeper and say, you know, where have you seen the providential hand of God in your life? Oh, I haven't seen it. You know, well, do you know somebody in your life that could look at it and maybe talk about it? I mean, all these things, when we see it, it's supposed to make us fall down and worship God even more because of how faithful and how good he is. Because he is good, and he is faithful, and he is wonderful. So how about we live as a people who begin more to understand that day by day by day? And when something happens in our lives we don't understand, we still worship him in the midst of it. Because God is always good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to understand deeper providence and grace and hope. That it's not that we can't cry out in hardship and pain, because we can. The whole book of Psalms tells us this. We can. And in those times, I ask that you would teach us to see you more clearly in the midst of those hardships. So we begin to grow into who you call us to be. Have our lives reflect the goodness and the love and the grace that we have received. Show us what it means to love others with that same love and grace that we have received. And to have brand new eyes to see this world around us. How you see it. Everything sitting providentially under your 
loom as you weave the tapestry of, of all of history together. Teach us to trust you, especially when we feel like we cannot see. Teach us to trust you and worship you in your goodness. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.